I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Happy St. Patrick's Day! St. Patrick's Day is a big deal in New York City. Even New Yorkers who don't have a drop of Irish blood in their veins wear green and get into the spirit of the day. Of course, the main event is the St. Patrick's Day Parade on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. The parade has a long history here in the city, dating back to the mid-1700s. We're getting into the spirit of the Irish on this week's Cityscape. Glad you're with us. Our first guest is Christopher Cahill. He's the executive director of the American Irish Historical Society. Christopher joins us this morning to talk about New York City's Irish history, including the St. Patrick's Day Parade. Christopher, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's a real pleasure to be here, George. I think it's important on a day like today for those who do not know to answer the question, who is St. Patrick? Well, St. Patrick is or was, and I suppose uh, is, remains the patron saint of Ireland. He's also the patron saint of the Archdiocese of New York, and so St. Patrick's Cathedral is named for him. He was a British-born figure, uh, was brought over sort of in basically in captivity to the island of Ireland, and he is credited with then returning to Ireland and bringing Christianity, introducing Christianity to the island of Ireland. And so that is kind of what what he is known for and what he stands for. And so I think, you know, he embodies a great central tradition in Irish history and culture. And uh, that, along with many other elements of Irish culture and history are celebrated on the day of his his birth. St. Patrick's Day is a big deal here in New York City. Has it always been such a big deal? Yeah, it is. It's actually one of the kind of great days in in the calendar year of New York, I would say. It's been the first recorded celebration of St. Patrick's Day in New York. It was 1762, so it's a good number of years before the signing of the Declaration of Independence. The early celebrations were gatherings of Irish militia, you know, in the sort of British um, garrison here in New York, uh, marching. And so this uh, would be the 251st St. Patrick's Day Parade. It hasn't always been sort of the same thing. It's not as though people have been marching up Fifth Avenue for 251 years. Fifth Avenue wasn't there and that sort of thing. But there has been continuous celebration of it and again, first recorded in 1762, it's likely that it would have been occurring before that as well, just because it was a, you know, a traditional day, you know, particularly for the Irish abroad from Ireland um, to to celebrate uh, and kind of remember their Irish heritage, I suppose. When was the first real wave of Irish immigration to New York City? Well, it's a it's a very interesting question, and actually the organization that I'm involved with, the American Irish Historical Society, a large part of its founding mission was to sort of more fully investigate the history of the Irish in America. It's usually presumed that the huge wave of Irish immigration to America and, and to New York City was uh, that occurred at the time of the Irish famine in the 1840s, the, the mid-1840s, that that's the, the beginning of Irish immigration here. And it's, it's not. It, it was a very large event in it, but um, there was a very considerable Irish immigration, both from 
you know, what, what's sometimes referred to as the two traditions in Ireland, the Irish Catholic Gaelic tradition and the Irish, you know, Protestant, which would be more families who had moved from Scotland to Ireland, often spending, say, three, two, three generations in Ireland and then, you know, uh, emigrating to America. A lot of the Appalachian people, a lot of the early uh, presidents of the of the United States, people like Andrew Jackson would have been sort of from from that tradition. But there was a good deal of Irish immigration of both types, like the building of the Erie Canal, for instance, in the late 18-teens, early 1820s. That was mostly Irish laborers, Irish Catholic laborers who would have come over. And so that type of immigration um, was occurring sort of throughout the, you know, 17th and 18th century, throughout the early 19th century. And but at the time of the famine, that really, you know, increased in, in vastly in number. And, and that was the first sort of huge mass wave of European immigration to to the United States. And it sort of set the template for a lot of the large waves of sort of Irish, Eastern European, um, uh, excuse me, Italian, Eastern European uh, immigration kind of a lot of the, the pattern of that massive emigration was established in the 1840s. Where did the Irish settle during that time period here in New York City? Really, like, and pretty broadly throughout the city, there's, there's were Irish neighborhoods uh, in all five boroughs. Lower Manhattan, the Five Points area, was a, a sort of famous area, but there's, you know, certainly uh, in a, a few different areas in Brooklyn, in the Bronx, Queens, Staten Island. There's so, um, and and one of the things too is that, uh, and I think this is is common, you know, today with immigrants from from whatever country, is that where somebody from more of a distance would have viewed these as Irish immigrants. They themselves would have been more grouped according to their particular sort of counties or townlands of origin. So there would have been neighborhoods that we might think of or one now might look back and say that was an Irish neighborhood, but it was really a Kerry neighborhood or a Mayo neighborhood or something like that. And so those distinctions definitely existed. And I think, you know, people uh, have done some interesting work looking into into some of that. But I think it's actually one of the one of the, those sort of invisible facts of of the nature of, of immigrant life here in the city. And how will you be celebrating St. Patrick's Day? I will be celebrating St. Patrick's Day by broadcasting. Um, uh, I do the, the commentary for the um, WNBC broadcast and and, you know, we'll be there again with my uh, with my colleagues, um, Nora O'Donnell and Tommy Smith. And that is a fun way of seeing the parade, seeing all the activity. And then I will, uh, we broadcast for four hours, and then I'll go up to the American Irish Historical Society and watch the, the later part of the parade from there. What time does the parade kick off? It kicks off, uh, well, we start broadcasting at 11, and the parade starts then. It gets up to the broadcast booth by around 11.45. So, but um, depending on where you are, it starts at 11 down near St. Patrick's Cathedral. Well, we'll watch for you on Channel 4. Well, thank you very much, and I hope that you have a great St. Patrick's Day yourself. Happy St. Patrick's Day, Christopher. Thanks so much, George. Christopher Cahill is the executive director of the American Irish Historical Society. They're online at AIHS.org.
The fiddle is the mainstay of most Irish music. You'll hear the instrument played everywhere from an Irish pub to Carnegie Hall. Caitlin Warblow's been playing the fiddle since she was a little girl. She now teaches others how to play. Caitlin and her fiddle are with us in the studio this morning. Caitlin, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. How long have you been playing the fiddle? Uh, a long time. I've been playing since I'm three. I was three, and I'm 28 now, so 25 years. Since you were three years old, huh? Three years old, yeah. Yep. Now, why did you pick up the fiddle at three years old? Well, of course, that wasn't my uh, decision. That was, I owe it all to my mom. She uh, saw a couple young fiddle players playing on the streets in Boston where my dad was going to school at the time, and she decided that she wanted me to play the violin, So, uh, and here I am. <laughs> You are not of Irish descent, however. No, actually, I'm from Alaska, and my heritage is mostly German on my dad's side and and American straight back to the Mayflower on my mom's side, so uh, very little Irish in my background. Do people often assume that you are Irish because you play this traditional Irish instrument? They do. (laughs) I sometimes have funny uh, experiences when I get off the stage and I talk to people, and people will often say, oh, where are you from? Where's your accent from? And I say, well, I'm from Alaska. And they just get this kind of look of dismay on their faces, like they've been sold a false bill of goods. <laughs> but, you know, it's all about the music. As long as as long as they enjoy the music, I, I figure that's, that's good. <laughs> now, you teach people how to play the fiddle with yes. the Irish Arts Center here yes. in New York mm-hmm. City, right? I teach two classes there, uh, actually three classes starting the semester. I teach uh, beginner class, advanced beginners, and advanced fiddle players. And um, it's all adults in those classes. And I also teach private students. I have about 30 private students. But I have to say I, en- I enjoy teaching the adult beginners the most. They are the ones who are really into it. And they're, they're paying for their own lessons. Their mom, their mom and dads aren't paying for it. So they're really into it. And uh, it's, it's just a blast to be able to teach them. Now, typically, kids are the ones who pick up instruments for the first time. What are these adults telling you as to why they want to learn the fiddle? They usually want to uh, just play in a social setting with other adult uh, beginners or intermediate players. And, um, you know, that jives very well with what Irish music is about. You know, it's people getting together in their kitchens or in their local pubs and playing tunes together. And in a place like New York, it's gotten very professional. So a lot of the people you see at the sessions in town are getting paid to do it. But that's not the tradition, obviously. That's actually a kind of a rarity, even in Ireland. So... Those people, they just they just want to have a fun time, a few drinks maybe, and, and a night out with their friends, and, and that's what they do, and it's, it's great to see. Is it an easy instrument to learn? No. Uh, the violin is one of the hardest instruments to learn. Uh, in the Of the Irish instruments, probably just the illin pipes and maybe the harp are the, are the other, only instruments that are harder than the fiddle. It really is a difficult one, and whenever an, an adult player actually makes it to a point where they can play with other people, I'm incredibly impressed because I was given lessons at a young age. I, I don't, I don't think I fully understand how difficult it is as an adult to pick up the instrument and uh, get to that point. So um, it's quite amazing when that happens. So what are the basics? What are the first things you show someone when they walk into your class and they've never played this thing before? Well, uh, the, the positioning of the instrument is probably the most important thing. And when I get a student who's tried to pick it up on their own, that's the first thing I have to spend many lessons fixing is just getting into the posture. There's many different ways to play the violin. I come from a classical background originally, so I tend to teach a, a classical posture because I feel that that gives them the best chances of being able to play anything they want down the line. Now, a lot of fiddle players will have different techniques and different postures, and it's all good, you know. <laughs> but for me, I try to give them a very classical technique base, and then from there, I, we can uh, do whatever they want to do. That's a very classical posture there. 
You want to so hear a little a, bit under the chin? Yeah, so a little under the chin. Uh, I use what's called a shoulder rest. It's this black thing you see here underneath the violin. It, it uh, gets the violin a little higher up so that you don't have to scrunch over as much. And I use a very classical bow hold, uh, a fiddle bow hold. You'd maybe have your pinky or your ring finger sticking up in the air a little bit. Uh, classical bow grip, you want to keep all those fingers on so that you can get a bit more sound if you, if you need it. But like I say, there's so many ways to play the violin, uh, and you know people make, make it work whichever way they choose. So well, Play us a little something, if you sure, will. Sure, I'll play you, uh, play you an Irish reel called The Palmer's Gate. Caitlin Warblow. Now that just sounds like a good time. Oh yeah, it's a lot of fun. It really is. You're playing professionally here in New York City? Yes, yes. I, I play professionally here. I tour with a couple different groups and, and I do a lot of teaching uh, when I'm in town. You have a CD, Manhattan Island Sessions. Yeah, this is a, actually a interesting CD. Um, a number of my friends and I were kind of lamenting the fact that there's not a lot of uh, recorded music straight out of the pubs, and that's really where the very, very interesting type of uh, the very, very interesting Irish music happens, in my opinion. People are a little looser than they are in a studio, and they're doing all this um, um, interesting arrangements of tunes. And uh, so last summer, I got together about fifteen of the top. Irish musicians in New York, all my friends, and we just recorded a bunch of sessions in pubs with um, remote um, mic systems and uh, put together this CD. So it's very different sound than you'd have on a studio recording because there's glasses clinking and people yelling and singing and all sorts of stuff. But I think it really does capture the atmosphere that people are looking for when they go out and want to hear a tune in an Irish pub. That's fantastic. Yeah. We'll actually go out of this interview with one of the tracks from this CD, Manhattan Island Sessions. Any one that you recommend? Oh, gosh. Let's see. Maybe the one called Splendid Isolation. Okay, here we go. Splendid Isolation. Caitlin Warblow, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Caitlin Warblow plays and teaches the fiddle here in New York City. You can take one of her classes through the Irish Arts Center on West 51st Street in Manhattan. In addition to the fiddle, the center provides other instrument lessons, including the Celtic harp. But their offerings extend much further than that. Aidan Conley is the executive director of the Irish Arts Center. He joins us now in the studio. Aidan, good morning. Good morning, George, and happy St. Patrick's Day. To you, too. Thank you. For those not familiar with it, what is the Irish Arts Center? Sure. Well, we're a multidisciplinary 
Contemporary Art Center based on the west side of Manhattan. So we're a New York institution. Um, we focus on uh, a performance uh, offering, including live music, theater, dance, literature, film, and humanities. We also have an exhibition program with visual arts uh, work that's coming over from Ireland and also some heritage exhibitions that tell the story of Ireland and Irish America that we have in our current facility and we send on the road. Uh, and we also have education programs. We've got, I think, 27 different classes in language or Irish music or dance. You can learn how to play the fiddle at your center. You can learn how to play the fiddle in your center. And, uh, you know, we always joke because uh, the classrooms, uh, if you've been to our facility, it's a pretty modest space. So the offices are right next to the classroom. So uh, if you're still working late like we usually are, fiddle class starts around 6 p.m. And you know when the fiddlers have arrived. The fiddlers and the boron pr- players have a way of making themselves known the minute they come in. Can you learn the Irish language at your center? You can indeed. You can indeed. And for many years, there's been a really passionate community of Irish language learners in the city. Um, and there are actually some several wonderful places that you can learn Irish language here in New York. Um, another great place is Glucksman Ireland House down at New York University. Uh, they offer a wonderful program. We offer a wonderful program, too. And what's great about the Irish language classes is that you can come in as a complete beginner, but you can also accelerate uh, throughout the program. So uh, we have a sort of basics for for beginners. Um, But then as you go, there's a Wednesday conversation circle and uh, an opportunity to really practice. And it's uh, as someone who was not terribly familiar with the Irish language when I began this job, I've been really inspired by the extent to which people are really, really moved. And it's a wide variety of people. It's not just Irish people. Um, You have people who, of course, um, are, you know, learned it or maybe even were brought up with it. But then you have other people who might be three, four generations of Irish America removed, and they use it as a way to sort of keep their kids connected. We have a Gaelic kids program as well for children. And then there are people who, because we're in New York City, they just pick up New York Magazine, no matter what their background is, and say, I'm going to learn something new today. I'm going to learn Japanese. I'm going to learn Irish. Um, and so we get a, a nice diverse mix as a result of uh, the New Yorkness of, of what we do. Yeah, let's assume for a moment that there are people listening to us right now who are saying to themselves, the Irish Arts Center. I am not Irish, so I don't get this. This is not the place for me. Mm-hmm. What do you say to them? Well, it's it's one of my favorite questions. It's, quite, it's a softball, really, George, because it's so many people have come to know uh, Irish culture in their lives. And it isn't just about, uh, you know, on St. Patrick's Day, green beer or shillelaghs. I think if you talk to a lot of people how they come to Irish culture, in fact, how I come to Irish culture, even though I happen to be, you know, the son of Irish immigrants, But I wasn't really so much exposed to the culture as a kid as I was as I came to it through the study of literature or the study of theater. And if you're uh, just those two examples, if you're a consumer of literature, uh, and I know a lot of your listeners are, then you love Seamus Heaney and you love Colin McCann. Um, And you don't have to be Irish to love those those works of art. Uh, And if you love Irish theater, then you've probably seen a play by Martin McDonough or Connor McPherson. And, And we're here to kind of just go layers deeper on that in terms of the rich literary tradition. We've got a whole season of, of, of authors coming in this season. We had a play actually just closing this weekend um, called I Heart Alice Hard Eye by a wonderful Irish playwright named Amy Conroy, one of the real bright new stars of the next generation. So we, you know, we can extend people's knowledge of, uh, of, of the kind of work they already know they like. But in addition, we can extend it to other disciplines. 
we have an opportunity to maybe people have a, some sense of familiarity with Irish traditional music, but they might not know that, in fact, Irish traditional music has influenced other forms of American music we're quite familiar with, such as bluegrass and old time. In fact, we just recently had a concert uh, up in Symphony Space earlier this week with Mick Maloney and some of the musicians from the Crooked Road. Uh, so uh, its tentacles are everywhere. Uh, so uh, uh, I think uh, uh, that's what's great about the fact that we're in New York with a, a city of uh, really voracious cultural consumers. And we can uh, we can give them an adventurous offering that sort of goes beyond nostalgia to the real excellence and innovation in what Ireland's producing in a lot of these art forms and draw a good crowd. That being said, what programs do you have specifically that focus on traditional Irish arts? We have a bunch. Um, certainly the classes uh, offer uh, people a chance to come and literally play a traditional instrument, whether it's the fiddle or the boron or the whistle um, or several others. I think this year we offered our first accordion class, and that's all very popular way to connect. And in our programming as well, I think if you go to visit Ireland, you'll often find, particularly if you talk to contemporary Irish artists, you have a lot of artists who are working in a traditional music space, but there are a lot of artists who are working far beyond the traditional music space. Um, but we we, we like to play in both fields. And in the traditional front, we work with a, a wonderful person who I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with named Mick Maloney, who's a wonderful uh, musician and folklorist. I know he's been on here at WFUV many times. Uh, and so he's an artistic associate of ours, and we've developed a lot of programming with him, a whole series of traditional shows up at Symphony Space. Uh, in addition, we built a, a Christmas show together called An Irish Christmas that sort of starts with the idea of Christmas in Ireland but extends it kind of far beyond it as well. But it uses traditional music as a jumping off point. Now, talking about more contemporary artists, I understand you'll soon be featuring an artist by the name of Julie Feeney in a residency of 10 performances. Now, the Village Voice has described her work as blending the pop ambitions of Gaga, meaning Lady Gaga, of course, with Elvis Costelvian wordplay. You know, you really haven't had a good morning until you've used the words Costelvian. Julie Feeney is really very, very special. Fascinated by the charm of it's one of the reasons that this job is so great, because you get the chance to uh, get to know artists that might not come across your radar otherwise. And Julie is somebody whose work isn't overtly Irish in the way perhaps audiences might stereotype, for lack of a better word, Irishness. But then again, it is, in a sense, because if you look beyond the stereotype of what Irish is, it gets to a whole notion of the way you tell a story. And the way Julie tells a story in her music is really quite like no other. First of all, she is a, a, a brilliant composer, um, as well as an arranger, as well as a musician. And so her virtuosity across a range of instruments has really put her... Uh, in the top tier of emerging Irish uh, musicians. With innocent eyes and expectant faces, momentary amnesia. In your opinion, is Irish culture getting enough attention in mainstream media? Ah, well, yes and no, right? I mean, it's St. Patrick's Day, so I'm sure your listeners are saying, are you kidding me? I've been hearing about Irishness all week. On the other hand, I think that there is uh, always the risk uh, that, like in any culture, that it gets sort of um, pigeonholed in a certain way. 
And so what we really try to do is, um, without begrudging our traditions or our history, because they're, what got, they're really what got us here, but also to kind of use those as a foundation and continue to sort of expand our horizons of what it means. And sometimes it takes an extra effort, as you know from your friends in the media, you know, people kind of have their ideas of what things are. And so our job really as a not-for-profit institution in a cultural space is to just keep at it and to continue to push those boundaries. And then eventually the mainstream attention comes. So are you open for business today, St. Patrick's Day? We are. We are. Well, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're going to be uh, this evening. We'll have our final performance of I Heart Alice Heart I uh, by Amy Conroy. And then, you know, this is not a seasonal gig for us. We're uh, on to the next thing. So uh, uh, March 23rd, we have a wonderful singer-songwriter series called Song Lives, curated by Susan McKeown, and that'll feature uh, wonderful performers Michael Brunnock and Brendan O'Shea. Um, coming up on April 13th, we're presenting Martin Hayes and Dennis Cahill and an all-star cast up at Symphony Space in a show called Masters of Tradition. Uh, and then, of course, later in April, we've got Juni, Julie Feeney in residence from uh, April 25th to May 6th. So it never ends. The website? www.irishartscenter.org. Aidan, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks, George. Aidan Conley is the executive director of the Irish Arts Center in New York City. Finally, on this St. Patrick's Day, we pay a visit to New York City's only family home preserved intact inside and out from the mid-19th century. The Merchant's House Museum on Manhattan's Lower East Side is holding a grand reopening today of its newly restored fourth-floor servants' quarters. Time Out New York has called it arguably the oldest intact site of Irish inhabitation in New York City. My name is Emily Wright, and I'm the uh, Communications and Programs Manager at the Merchant's House Museum. Now, where are we standing right now, Emily? Uh, we're in the uh, servants' quarters up on the fourth floor of the museum. Uh, one of the bedrooms has recently been restored, um, so we have a little sneak peek here of uh, the new 1850s paint color um, as well as the uh, furnishings in the room. Was that a painstaking process to get this paint to exactly what it looked like in 1850? It was a really big process. Um, we had a paint conservator come up from Virginia named Susan Buck, and she was here several times over the summer taking tiny little paint samples throughout the house. She would use a scalpel and then collect these samples and look at them under a microscope and actually count the layers of paint. Uh, to determine what the correct paint color was in the 1850s. And this is a pretty exciting space just because uh, it's blue up here, which is uh, unusual for the rest of the house, uh, as we're finding. So it's pretty exciting. I want to talk more about the Irish servants who worked for the Treadwells, but first of all, tell us about the Treadwells. Well, the Treadwell, Seabury Treadwell, was a hardware merchant, which meant that he imported metal goods. Um, he and his wife Eliza and their seven children moved into the house in 1835. Uh, in 1840, Mrs. Treadwell gave birth to an eighth child, Gertrude, who lived her entire life in the house. She died here in her 90s in 1933. And so the Treadwells, I mean, they were here for such a long time that it's a really great, um, it's really great for us as a museum because the family had been here um, and they didn't sell a lot of their stuff. They didn't make any significant changes to the house, and so it really provides sort of a time capsule uh, for the museum. They were a wealthy family in New York City at the time. Yes, they were very wealthy. Um, this neighborhood, which is known as the Bond Street neighborhood, um, was a very uh, well-off part of town. When uh, Seabury Treadwell bought the house, it really was a, a very fancy suburb, sort of north of where the real city was at the time, further downtown. 
and they hired Irish servants to work for them. There were always four female servants. They were almost always Irish, um, as was very typical in the 19th century. Um, most servants were Irish, especially women. The Treadwells may have also had male servants, but there's no record of them in the census. And so that's, um, you know, it's impossible to tell whether there were male servants living here or maybe they hired them out from uh, outside. Um, but there were always four uh, female servants here. Um, and this is where they would have slept, where we are right now? Yes, this is where they would have slept. This room and the room right next door, the servants would have slept two to a room. Uh, there are four rooms of this size and shape on this floor. Two of them would have been bedrooms, and the other two would have been used for storage. And the big central room really would have been a workspace. They could have hung laundry up here if it were wet outside or too cold to hang wet laundry um, and done other chores up here as well. What kind of work did they do specifically for the Treadwells? Really, they did everything. Um, it was a very long uh, and difficult job. They would have been up with the sun. They would have been downstairs in the kitchen. They would have cooked all of the meals, done all of the cleaning. Um, the sort of uh, lowest servant on the totem pole would have also had to carry coal. Uh, the coal would have been delivered to the cellar, which is the very, very bottom of the house. And so she would have put it in a bucket and brought it up to the kitchen floor and then up to the parlor floor and then to the first bedroom floor and then to the second bedroom floor. And then finally, she would get all, all the way up to her own bedroom. Um, it was heavy, it was dirty, and it was tiring. What have you been able to find out about the women who actually did work for the Treadwells? Have you found information about them? There's very little information. Um, we can look to census records, which give us some information. What we have been able to tell is that um, every time there's a census, there are different women listed on the census, uh, which means that there was at least some turnover among servants here, which is to be expected for the 19th century. Um, oftentimes women would start out in service and then maybe they would get married and they would go back to Ireland perhaps or stay here in the United States. But so we know that there was turnover. Uh, the census does give us some names of servants um, and we know that many of the servants here uh, were uh, Irish immigrants and not the children of Irish immigrants. Um, in 1855, three of the four uh, servants were from Ireland and the other was from England. Emily, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Emily Wright is with the Merchant's House Museum on Manhattan's Lower East Side. In honor of St. Patrick's Day today, the museum is holding a grand reopening of its newly restored fourth-floor Irish servants' quarters. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Julie Clark. Have a great weekend.